Welcome to NHASD Spotlight. It's a regular podcast from the New Hampshire Association of Supervision and Curriculum Development. My name is Bill Carosa, Executive Director. Before introducing our guest today, our conference series catalog is set to view on our website. Includes Steve Ventura, Peter DeWitt, a robust math conference with Kristen Hilty, Caroline Worcester, Graham Fletcher, Steve Linewan, Kevin Mahoney. In addition to the professional learning we support, uh, NHASED works with our education partners throughout New Hampshire to advocate for our members. We produce a monthly uh, newsletter. We're on social media every day, and we have uh, new benefits for our memberships coming up uh, this fall. So check everything out at NewHampshireASED.org. You can register for our October conferences with uh, Ventura and DeWitt on the website as well. Look for a robust slate of professional development opportunities coming up in the new school year. Hey, I'm pleased to have as guest host today our president. And by the time this airs, you're going to be our president, Lucy. Lucy Kenotis is director of elementary ed in Timberlane, New Hampshire, and going to be uh, chatting with our host and myself today. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm well, Bill. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Well, our guest today is Dr. Donnie Tran. He's currently a partner at the Center for Innovation and Education. He taught uh, middle school and high school science in Oakland and Boston before leaving the classroom to help launch the Massachusetts region of Teach for America in 2009 while working on his doctorate at Harvard. Uh, Donnie also served as the assistant soup for academic and professional learning in the Boston Public Schools, also was the assistant superintendent for innovative programs for Fulton County, Georgia, a little different region of uh, the United States than Boston. Of course, it's outside of Atlanta. He led the uh, community-driven co-design of two innovative high school models. Uh, Donnie lives with his wife, Polly, and uh, two kids in Atlanta, Georgia, and wrote this book, The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. And that's mainly why we're here. Donnie, thanks for taking the time from way down in Atlanta. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I wrote it with uh, my dear friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Landon Mascareñas, uh, who is currently vacationing in Europe uh, right now. And so uh, you, you've got just me. Yeah, I, I, I don't want you to make any enemies with your uh, your co-author there. I'm glad you uh, uh, you mentioned his name. I have a brother-in-law, by the way, who is actually driving up here because uh, I have a, a family event coming up, but he lives in outside of Atlanta as well and been down there many times for conferences and so on. It's it's certainly warm in Atlanta compared to up here. That must have been a, a shift for you when you moved down there in terms of climate. In, indeed, indeed. It's uh, it takes some getting used to, but you you start wearing uh, you start wearing the right clothes, just like uh, <laughs> getting the right coats when you're in New England. There you go. Uh, you know, when I started uh, teaching in the 1980s, I worked at a school that was very community involved. It was a big piece of what we did, and I think we were a little unusual for those days uh, in that. It seemed, though, and a lot of it, I think, was COVID. We saw the headlines and the video during during the COVID times, the the issues with community versus teachers and administrators. When did it go off the rails a little bit? When did community involvement go off? And then it probably led in part to you writing your your book on uh, getting the system open once again. Tell us about that, Donnie. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think that... Um, much of the modern reform movement fell into um, the same kind of of uh, logical traps. So there was a lot uh, of emphasis on external expertise, uh, telling communities and schools and districts and states that 
they needed to change in certain ways uh, that were determined from the outside. And we saw that pattern kind of play out at all of those levels. You had, you know, federal reform efforts being really expert driven. There's only a few models for transformation that you could do. And those were imposed on states, which then states imposed those on local districts and communities. Schools became sort of then like needing to follow certain patterns of of change and reform. And a lot of those really didn't emphasize bringing in the lived experience of students, uh, the lived experience of parents and communities into conversation about how to make their schools better. Uh, And so I think a lot of things were sort of hinged on that, that uh, concept around how change happens. So Donnie, you talk in your book about knowing your community um, in order to sort of right tap into those lived experiences and to understand. Um, can you talk more about right? Who are you speaking to about knowing your community, and and what are some of the things that we need as educators to learn ourselves in order to engage in that work? Yeah. I mean, community is a is a funny and interesting word. It means a hundred different things to a hundred different people. Uh, and actually, who gets to define who is in the community is actually like a, a source of power, right? And it's a it's a source of authority. And so we we really emphasize expanding the way that we think about community and actually involving more people in the construction of it. So for a lot of folks, community is you know, the people who surround them uh, with care and love, but also for lots of people, community is a way of othering people uh, and saying, well, you are, you are part of a community. And so it's, it's like a separating um, function. It's a separate, it's a way to say that you are different than me. And there are lots of people for whom community is a place where they they were they were just sort of ready to leave you know they were it was the us versus them and uh you know a small town that didn't recognize who they were as a person and and so they it's actually it can be a very sort of traumatizing thing to, for people to think about their community all of those things are true all of those ways of thinking about community are uh are part of people's experience and so if we we ask that openers the people who want to open the system of education back up have to really like think about how they conceive of community, who do they say community is, and then inviting folks uh, into the process of redefining that community. How do we? How do I then bring together a group of people who can help me think carefully and more expansively about who is in a community? Um, and then when you have that, you can start to then see if you can get representatives from those different aspects of the community to come to the table um, and be a part of the work, uh, the project that you're trying to open up. Johnny, you state that for open systems to really work, you need to understand who needs to be at the table. And to me, this is one of the major parts of your book. Who are or what are those three groups that make up the open system? The way that we think about it is you really need to acknowledge that when you're putting together a task force or a project group, one of the fallacies that we always run into is trying to have it all go through like an application process. Uh, And that when the external environment, when like the community is looking at the group that's coming together, they can look at it with a lot of distrust because they don't believe in the sort of honesty and legitimacy of that application process. They think that somebody in the back is picking and choosing, you know, who they want uh, and cherry picking those people to get the outcome that they 
uh, that they predetermine. And that's a, that's a bad trust spiral to be in. And so we ask leaders often to think through three different stakeholder groups that if you can acknowledge and name them openly, then you can actually build a lot of trust with your community. So there are uh, essential stakeholders. These are like the folks who politically are just important. And we just should acknowledge that they, they need to be at the table. Uh, and then there are interested stakeholders. These are the people who come to school board meetings. They are always raising their hand to be on the PTA, you know, subcommittee or, or you know, folks that are just genuinely and authentically interested and are plugged into the system. Then there are um, potential stakeholders. These are the folks who live the system, but they may not actually know that these processes are occurring. Um, they are doing their day-to-day life and they're just going through going through their uh, their existence and they're they're sending kids to school or they're not they're not you know maybe they're just community members and we actually have three different processes for those three different stakeholder groups to compose um, the coalition that would do the opening work and so the for the essential stakeholders we just appoint them you know, we just have the superintendent or the commissioner of education. You just say, you know what, you're on, you're on this committee. Uh, that's a direct appointment process. They don't need to apply. They're just like blue ribbon style, you know, bring them in. That's about a third of, of the group. And then with the interested stakeholders, we have an open application process. So we just put out an open application. We have people uh, raise their hand and fill it out and, and we review it. And we try to uh, bring those people into the process that way. For the potential stakeholders, these are the people who may not have ever heard of this task force at all. We almost do something that's a little bit like jury duty. Uh, we call it sortition. And we just say, you know, we're just going to take a random slice of folks and we're going to invite them into the process. They don't have to apply either. They just get a letter and they say, would you like to be a part of this? Uh, and by bringing, by being really transparent with each of those different types of stakeholders, we can say to the community, this is how we composed this group. We have people who are appointed, people who applied, and then people who are randomly selected. Uh, And actually being transparent about that engenders a lot of trust and actually brings in a ton of really, really interesting perspectives that when you can bring them together can really be a powerful force. When you have those groups together, I assume in one room, maybe on Zoom, hopefully in person, then what? I mean, so their input then leads to real change, real decision making. What happens at that point? Yeah, this is a really important thing that often is overlooked. I think when you're trying to do these kinds of open community driven processes is being really, really clear with what the decision that is on the table is really about. Uh, and you really need like the partnership of the executive, be it the superintendent or the commissioner, plus uh, openness from the governance structure, be it a board, you know, a committee, whatever the governance system is. Everybody needs to be really clear with what decision they're willing to to give into this process of co-creation with the community. Um, and so, when you can get that clarity then you build a timeline that's pretty robust and not that doesn't go on forever. So many of these processes or advisory groups have no end and they have no, they have no sort of clear point of emphasis. Uh, and so you try to get a clear decision and a clear process and timeline that you bring these people together to, to really influence and shape. Uh, and 
every group is is different. You know, there's sometimes they make a recommendation to the board that then is considered. Sometimes they are directly creating like a, a decision or a policy. It really just depends on the context. But being sharp about what it is and when it's going to happen is a critical part of of doing this kind of open systems work. Donna, you speak to um, you know the openers and, and all parties needing to be open, right, in order to engage in this work. But as the opener, right, as sort of the facilitator or the person who starts the ball rolling, mm-hmm. what are some skills that educational leaders may not be prepared in our education system? Uh, what are some of the skills that are needed in order to go beyond just being open to the idea? Oh yeah, uh, such a great question, Lucy. The one of the things that we, um, in addition to the kind of the personal work that you're talking about, like they have to be open themselves, right? Like they have to be open to the idea of being open. And but there are just incredible uh, set of skills that we have really co-created and developed with a, a community of openers across the country uh, that are really facilitative, right? Like they are, they're real process things that we have seen openers do again and again. One of the things that we think is most important is actually establishing what we call a shared reality. You need to be able to, well, there's lots of ways to do it. Lots of empathy driven processes like you see in design thinking, but one of the most useful things that we've seen be effective over and over again is the defining of a shared problem statement. What is it that we are actually doing? What is the problem we are solving for here? It can get, it can take quite a long time to get to it. Um, you know, uh, a few weeks of of pretty sustained work, but getting to a place where you can name whose problem, who has a problem, what does their problem look like, and then why do they have that problem, is is a really important uh, skill for any leader to get to. Because once you can get sharp about that. Then you can generate lots of creative ideas, and you can do that through processes we're all familiar with, brainstorming, ideating, whatever you want to name it. But getting getting to a point of shared understanding of the problem is, I would say, one of the key facilitative uh, moments that a leader would have to would really have to get to. I appreciate you putting the uh, de Tocqueville quote in, I think it's chapter three at the beginning. Because it, and for people who don't know, he was a, a French lawyer who actually came over to the U.S. in the 1830s, ended up writing just an incredible book, really two-volume series on America and what it looked like uh, in the 1830s from a perspective of someone who's not American. I appreciate the courage that you are and you and your partner uh, in crime here with with the um, the book you're writing and the work you do is you're kind of taking on democracy in some sense, at least in the world of education. Do you feel like you can, and I found this with school board members after they were elected to office, you know, once you're appointing them to a post, which is really what you're doing with at least one third of your, your group, that they sort of come to the middle and that when you're talking about what is the problem, the distance between people is is less because they're all in the same room. They're talking about things and maybe their eventual goals are relatively similar, even though they may come from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think uh, we we take a lot of inspiration from so many um, different sources and, and de Tocqueville is certainly uh, a seminal one. I think one of the things that drives us is 
school and schooling and school systems are one of the first places that both young people and families start to see the democratic process in action. And the patterns that they learn become the way that they think about democracy in, in large in large part. And so if we can reinvigorate the way that democracy plays out within the school context, within the school district context, we are actually apprenticing people into a new into a new and more vibrant way of being democratic citizens. And we take that really seriously. And we think that school leaders and district leaders should also take that very seriously. That if they are keeping folks out and really limiting the energy that they can bring, which is happening a lot, right? Like how many surveys have we taken? How many focus groups have we been in? Uh, if that is the pattern that of, of how we think about democratic engagement within schools, then uh, we are limiting the kind of power and energy that people bring uh, into that space. And so we are, we're really offering up a different set of ways and a different set of techniques for, for bringing in that energy in productive ways. So Donnie, how would you, um, so I, right in my work and working with my colleagues, but it, across the state, I can see lots of people being open to being open, right? But that democracy piece, right? What is sort of the the hill we have to get over in thinking that our job is not just about the students in front of us, but also, right, the democracy within our communities and our families and, and not shying away from thinking about it just as the kids who are in our classroom are our responsibility. Yeah, it's, you know, we, we work with a lot of leaders in schools and districts who say things like, Ugh, I hate the politics, right? I don't want to do the politics. And, you know, we, I think that really, and Lana and I talk about this all the time, that really comes from a, a, a pretty sort of impoverished idea of what politics is really. And a really um, incomplete understanding about the education leader's role as a public leader. And what we would like for people to rethink is that politics is really the act of understanding and marshalling public will to do something that none of us can do alone. Uh, because we we all, you know, I, I, this is me speaking as a recovering district person. We all can fall into the trap of thinking that we can create change by memo, right? That we can, as long as we write it down and we get a, the right people to say yes, change will happen. But that's not that's not actually how change happens. Change happens when people own the 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 issue and own the creation of the solution and the implementation of the solution. The only way to get to that level of ownership we find is through co-creation. The people will, you know, we say it all the time, oh, people only buy into what they make. And yet we don't act that out very often. We don't act enact co-creation with students, with families, with community members, with the educators in our building. Like we can we can bring these people into a room. And I think, Bill, you said it earlier, we can reduce the distance between people uh, as long as we can bring them into a space, create a shared reality, a, a shared understanding of the problem, and then really start co-creating solutions to it. And it unlocks a ton of capacity 
I think people often feel like, oh my gosh, it takes so long. It must take, it just takes so long to do this work. But I think what you get if you spend the time is just so many more people bringing their brain power and their energy and their commitment when you can co-create something together. Well, and and I hear you say that, and I think about, you know, your comment about, um, as educators, we we miss the lived experiences of our students and our families, but also thinking about how many conversations I've had with families and parents who their experience in school is is their perceived experience of their of their children, right? And so the ability to kind of bring both sides together to say that's not what students are living in school right now, and here is the reality, yeah. certainly would help. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's. It is, um, you know, one one phrase that I'm I think about it a lot that's that I was shared with me at some point was that everybody's truth is true and incomplete, uh, and so if we can bring all of those truths into a space and create the kind of environment where people can say that and share it and acknowledge that when we pull all that all those different pictures together, we can actually get a much richer image um, of of what's really going on and then what we can do about it. Donnie, can you talk about real success you've had in reading a little bit of your bio, whether it's in Atlanta or Kentucky, where these principles, the open system that you write about actually worked or is beginning to work anyway in certain districts or schools? Yeah. Um, you know, we we love this sort of evolving discipline that we are an energy that we're starting to see. And so we see many examples of it across the country, not just in our own work um, as, as two leaders in the system, but also um, in the community of openers that we are lucky to be a part of. So uh, a few really great examples. Um, So Landon led a process in Boulder, uh, Colorado, where they had a community group come together to reimagine kind of school SRO um, policy. And when they create, when they did that, it was, it passed the board with, um, uh, with a ton of support. And they've actually seen a reduction in disciplinary issues and a reduction in suspensions uh, as a result of that. Similarly in Burlington, Vermont, where um, I was lucky to do work, we we had families and community members and students a part of the strategic planning process. And the board was so blown away by that shared work that they passed the strategic plan unanimously. Mm-hmm. And they uh, one board member said, this is really more than a strategic plan. This is like a constitution for our district, uh, just a different way of working. And in fact, there they've put in place a coalition of young people and families and community members to help guide the implementation of the strategic plan. So they've really made the shift from even just writing something in a book uh, or in a, in a binder to really implementing it side by side with their community. Uh, similarly in, in, um, in Colorado, we've got, we've had a, a land and led a, a process of, communities, rural communities, creating portraits of a graduate uh, with the community and then using that to line up um, pathways through K-12, but also to community college and then to workforce. 
And they've seen an incredible increase improvements in student engagement, uh, community engagement, alignment to workforce, more opportunities for young people to do work-based learning. Uh, and so we've seen some really, really incredible work come out of that co-creation process. How do you suggest that districts keep it going for another 10, 20 years? Well, it's, um, I think the easiest way to to really keep it sustainable is to not think about community engagement as something that happens over here or that's owned by this department. It It is just, should you just be a way of doing work when you're engaging in a project? Yeah, we, we also just really encourage people to start small. You know, the, we what we talk about in the book is identify an open moment, identify like a project, a thing where you're willing to do this kind of intensive co-creation. And then we ask folks to then look for other opportunities to apply that same kind of open frame uh, and just, you know, ease into it. And then when you start to have it be a habit and a, a way of working, then the resourcing is not, doesn't feel as intensive. And then you're just kind of have it as like a way that you engage communities in the initiation of a project. One thing I love, Donnie, about the interview at this point is that you seem very positive about the future. And honestly, when I read and I read every day, lots of current education articles, a little bit of research and the positiveness is, is not in every place. If you hadn't noticed, why are you so optimistic about obviously your work and the work you're doing in schools uh, in the future of, of public education and private education for that matter? It's uh, it's easy to look at the sort of energy that's coming from families right now and the things that are happening in, in school boards uh, and communities across the country and actually feel pretty pessimistic about that. And I acknowledge that. And so, and so does Landon. But when I look at that, I see not like a third rail that nobody wants to touch. And, sh- you know, and like, if you touch it, you die. I see a live wire that contains a lot of energy that if you could figure out how to harness it and cultivate it in productive ways can actually power a real incredible change in the way that we operate schools uh, and what that could mean for young people. I think we have spent a long time holding families and communities at arm's length, and they're just not going to stand for that anymore. Uh, But the goal should not be to wall them off even further. It A, I just don't think it would work. And B, I think that it would be leaving a lot of energy on the table, but we want to bring that energy in, in ways that are productive. And it doesn't mean only some voices get to come, only the voices that are ideologically aligned to us, that that's not going to work either. If we really want to do this work, we're going to have to bring all of those voices into a space and figure out how to speak and engage productively with one another. And we think that it can be done. Uh, it Just because something's politically contentious doesn't mean that it should be avoided at this point. We have to figure out a way to, to engage with it. Talk about uh, how people can get a hold of you, learn more about the open system and more about your work. Yep. Uh, we would love for folks to come to uh, www.theopensystem.org uh, and just check out some of the other people doing this work across the country um, and some of the core principles that are the backbone of our book. Uh, of course, 
feel free to read the book, which can be ordered on uh, Harvard Ed Press website and on Amazon. Um, and we will be engaging in a, a series of uh, community visits across the country this fall um, and where we'll it won't be kind of your standard book talk it will be more of a participatory experience where we're going to model some of the things that are that we write about in the book in terms of creating a shared problem statement or um, building consensus in in a room and, and so let people see what it can look like when this kind of open system is in 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 action and you're doing some work in New Hampshire with our partners over at New Hampshire Learning Initiative Absolutely. And uh, they've been incredible partners uh, and in New Hampshire and New England is ripe for this sort of democratic revolution. So really excited to continue that work. Did you become a, a Sox fan uh, when you went to school in Boston and worked here? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, of course, have an affinity for the Sox, uh, but I have grown up uh, too long in Georgia to not be a Braves fan. So that's, uh, I get know. it. I was talking earlier. My, my brother-in-law grew up here and, uh, I think he's still a Sox Patriots Bruins fan, but he's been in Atlanta for a long time, but you know, these regions draw you in sometimes. They, they do. They do. And my, my kids still love the Sox. So they're good for they, them. At least they were raised right. I guess <laughs> you, you taught them well. You and your wife, of course. Yeah. Hey, thanks for your time, Donnie. I, we really wish you the best as you move forward with the book. And in fact, it's coming out. It's not even out quite yet, right? It's coming out in a uh, week tomorrow. or two. Tomorrow? Tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. All right. The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. Donnie, thanks for your time. Appreciate that. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And Lucy, thank you, too. Thank you both. All right. Well, for more information on NHASCD, our conferences, all the work we do, head to our website, NHASCD.org. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our mission is to serve as a catalyst for conversation and action to inspire excellence in teaching, learning, and leading. I'm Bill Carosa, Executive Director for NHASCD. And for my good friend and partner in crime, Lucy Kenotis, we'll see you next time for NHASCD Spotlight. Take care, everybody. Thank you.